0: Earth is a contaminated planet. Every other planet we know of is pristine. But down here, Earth has been completely permeated by a process known as life. It didn't start this way, but over the last couple billion years or so, life has evolved and taken over virtually every surface. Over the last couple decades, we've discovered that you're even able to find life in a hole at the bottom of the sea. Welcome aboard the Joydee's Resolution, a drill ship on a scientific expedition in the Indian Ocean to start a hole that will one day be the first to reach through the Earth's crust to the mantle. My name is Lucas and on this episode I talk to two microbiologists on board the ship who are asking what the true limits of life are and what sort of microbes we can find living in the rocks hundreds of meters below the seafloor. Plus, at the end of the episode I'll have an update on our drilling progress. Most people think of a rock as being near the opposite of something that's alive. But let me introduce you to a couple people who disagree.
1: Uh, My name is Ginny Edgecombe, and I'm one of the two microbiologists on this expedition.
2: Uh, So my name is Jason Sullivan. Uh, I am a professor at Texas A&M University and a marine microbiologist. So I'm on the ship looking for microbial life um, below the seafloor, basically trying to see how far below the seafloor we can find microbial life, um, the quantity of that microbial life, uh, and then who they are and what they're doing. Together, Ginny
0: and Jason form our microbiology team. But why do they even think there are
2: microbes down there? So in this spot in particular, I would say um, the reason we expect to find microbes below the seafloor, specifically in basement, um, anywhere is because water moves through basement. When he
0: says basement, he's talking about the hard rocks that form the ocean crust, below the layers
2: of sediment that are found in the seafloor. And so at any one time, approximately 2% of the volume of the ocean is actually moving through subsurface volcanic basement. And generally that water that's moving through is coming from the seawater. And so if you have seawater moving through cracks in rocks, then probably it's bringing microbes with it. Geologically speaking, the movement of water through the crust is pretty quick, right? It's not on our life scale, but in terms of how the, the Earth operates, it turns out it's important um, to the chemistry of the entire planet that water is moving through the crust, and what microbes are doing to the chemistry of that water is probably important, especially in relation to carbon.
0: But how can you locate microscopic cells inside a very hard rock? And how can you be sure you didn't just sneeze those microbes onto the samples in the lab? Well. You may remember from the last episode, the first thing that happens when a core comes on deck is the microbiology sample is taken and isolated to prevent contamination. To handle this sample, Jason gets suited up with gloves, a lab coat, and a face mask to prevent his own microscopic friends from jumping onto it.
2: One of the upsetting discoveries from the last cruise that I was on was a more abundant thing that I was detecting was clearly a skin bacterium and I I was a little less careful then. You you live and you learn.
0: (laughs) So, just for this expedition, a clean room was built on the ship. Here's Jason describing it from the inside.
2: Um, So yeah, so so basically, um, we wanna minimize things, particles floating around the air, especially cells. And so we had them built, I'm standing in, uh, one, two, three, (laughs) Uh, three walled with a ceiling um compartment that's sitting on a desk and then it kind of hangs over the edge of the desk Um, and then around the bottom the part that's hanging over the edge there's this kind of vinyl material and on the back wall is a curtain that i walk through and so it's basically an enclosed environment with just a little space open on the bottom Um, and then on the top there's a filter Um, it's called a hepa filter h-e-p-a that's an acronym for something that i don't know Um, but it's a a very small poured filter so so bacteria will not float through it Um, and all of the air coming into the unit uh, is coming through that through the top um, and then going out the bottom and it's something that we call positive pressure so basically all of the air is being forced through the filter and there's enough airflow that it goes out the bottom so you don't have things kind of coming in through the bottom Um, and so that's especially on a ship that's really as clean an environment as we can ask for. And so we we feel a little more comfortable working in here, um, you know, and having the sample out in the open.
0: Ginny showed me a poignant demonstration of why this is needed.
2: Yeah,
1: let's look at a couple of examples from the incubator here. Um, I showed these two Petri dishes to the group today because they illustrate uh, the difference between fast-growing contaminants and the organisms that are likely to be growing in situ.
0: In situ just means microbes that are actually from the region of interest.
1: So this plate here is a plate of nutrient agar, what's called potato dextrose agar, that's a favorite of fungi. And this plate fell open briefly while it was outside of our clean room area, out here in the lab, for maybe two or three seconds. And then I popped the lid back on and put it in the incubator. Made a note of it, though, you see on the lid. Right. So yeah, opened open in lab. lab. Yeah. yeah. And um, you can see that there's some yeah. three kind of large bacillus-looking colonies growing here and then there's blocks, something yeah. something large and like vigorous across, right, right yeah. there growing and this is much faster than we would suspect um, any of our indigenous microbes to be appearing on the
0: dish. So that plate was exposed to the lab outside the clean room for just a couple seconds and yet the microbes in the air took hold.
1: This dish on the other hand uh, is one that was only opened in the clean room and it shows this sort of diffuse growth here in the Yeah, middle. it just Do looks kind of that? blurry
0: in the middle there, right, I see very right, little there. Right.
1: Which might be the beginnings of some fungal growth and that's oh, kind of cool. the pattern that I would exp- expect, but it's kind of too soon to tell, but it yeah. just illustrated the, the contrast between fast-growing contaminants and the microbes that we're uh, hunting for.
0: Ginny and Jason expect the microbes at these depths to be living a very slow life, with very low metabolic rates.
1: It's very different than studying microbes in the near surface that divide every few hours, or every few days, or every few weeks. These guys may not divide for months, or maybe even a year.
0: In the process of recovering the core from the bottom of the hole, it comes in contact with a lot of seawater and drilling mud, and of course all the microbes within these. Therefore, Jason needs to get at the rock in the very center of the core. The edges are considered contaminated. He focuses on a vein in this sample, as that's where he knows fluid has previously flown through.
2: Um, So it's kind of a brownish to slightly red vein that runs the length of the sample, which means when I hit it, it'll open up and it will be easy to get that. Cool. So Let's hit it piece of the vein just kind of... Oh, I see that.
0: Is that like the ideal sample for you?
2: Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because it has like exactly where we think probably there there would be biomass.
0: Now, at this point, samples are taken for a wide variety of experiments. The most basic of these is simply counting how many cells are there.
2: With that kind of like crushed up rock, and we're like, okay, this is like, quote, the sample that we're going to work with. Um, One of the things I'm going to do is uh, cell counts, which sounds easier than it is. Um, it took a little while to kind of develop that, but it's um, because the cells tend to be tightly associated with rock particles, you have to physically separate them um, and then filter them down and onto a filter and count them on that filter. Visually? Um, visually, yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> with a yeah, microscope. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, and part of this is trying to understand this distribution of cells in the subsurface. Is it? It doesn't appear to be uniform, so is it directly correlated with veins, which probably, or is there some other feature that is correlated with? And so one of the things that's like really fundamental, so the most fundamental thing you can ask about a system is, how much life is there, right? And so that's the cell counts. Um, And then kind of the next step up, besides I would say is maybe who's there, um, but also what controls how much life is there. And so we know everything that's alive on the planet, needs carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus, right? Carbon you use for energy, food, Um, nitrogen you use for making proteins, and phosphorus you use for making um, membranes and DNA. And so those are like, there are certainly other things that are required, but those are like the three biggest. And a lot of times, microbes will need them in certain ratios, and so if one of those three kind of falls below that ratio, you would say, well, that's what's limiting the amount of biomass in this particular system. If you added more, you would get more biomass. So experiment with adding different
0: nutrients to the rock samples to figure out which one is the magic ingredient to get these microbes
2: to grow. So, and the idea is to Um, Let those just sit for like six months, because these are probably slow growing bugs. Um, And then at the end of that six months, look at, um, out of all those things that were added, how much of it was used up just by basic chemistry, um, doing cell counts, which will really tell you if you see more cells in all of the experiments that have just the nitrogen added, that indicates that the cells down there, there's not quite enough nitrogen for them to grow much more. This can give
0: you a lot of information about what the microbial community down there is doing. But to really fingerprint who's there, you need to sequence some genes.
1: In this case, we start with um, an amount of crushed rock or sediment or water, whatever the the substance is that you're studying. And um, the the first step is to uh, break open any cells that are in that sample. All right. and So you do that in the presence of buffers and enzymes that protect the, the uh, DNA or RNA, whatever you're extracting, from degradation.
0: DNA encodes our genetic information, so it can be really useful to tell us which microbes are there. But the problem is, it can also be well preserved, so the cells may have been dead for a long time. RNA, on the other hand, is used in active cellular processes, like making proteins and it's much less well-preserved. So DNA can tell you who is there, but RNA can tell you who is active.
1: One, uh, one thing that uh, is particularly challenging for us is that we would like to use a lot of RNA-based methods, okay? methods that look at messenger RNA to tell us what the organisms are doing down there, if they're there. And um, working with RNA is really tricky because there are enzymes uh, called RNases on the surface of almost everything so your hands you know your iPhone you know everything is covered with RNases, and they're produced by every living thing uh, to destroy free RNA okay so RNA that is not yours because you don't want free RNA in the environment you know from the bacterium next door to you to be taken up Okay, you don't want that to get inside your cell and dictate what your cell should do. Right. So these enzymes are designed to destroy free RNA, and that those are enzymes that we really struggle against because if you just touch with your finger, uh, your test tube, your little you know, vial of RNA, you're, you're done. You know, all that RNA in your tube is going to be gone. So if your pipette tip touches your bench surface, okay, and then you put it into your tube to, to put something into it or something like that, you can destroy all your messenger RNA. So that's what makes it really tricky. And that's why we're kind of fanatical about our little space there. Oof.
0: The complications of being a microbiologist. Anyways, Back to gene sequencing.
1: So once you've you've purified the DNA, RNA, DNA or RNA, then if it's in the RNA form, you have to make a DNA copy of it, okay? So you use a naturally occurring enzyme called reverse transcriptase to make a DNA copy of your RNA pool, all right? Once it's in the DNA form, it's stable, and you don't have to worry about it as much as when it was in the RNA form.
0: At this point... Ginny sends off her DNA sample to get sequenced and receives, in return, a list of millions of A's, T's, G's, and C's. These are the components of the DNA.
1: So you think of it this way. So if you took a book, all right, uh, like one of your favorite old-time books, and you put it into a paper shredder, all right, and now you have a pile of little snippets of your book. Um, and you want to put all those pieces back together again so you can read the book. Yeah. And that's essentially what you've done when you've created what's called a metagenome for an environmental sample, which includes the many genomes of all the things that were in your sample so you won't uh, for a metagenome recover complete genomes for everybody that's in there but you'll have a lot of data for a lot of different types of organisms and you've got to go through a uh, computationally intensive process of looking at every piece of uh, this huge data set to see how the pieces overlap you can then uh, basically compare each sequence individually against These huge databases of known sequences, all right, and then the final step would be to bin those sequences into taxonomic pools to assign taxonomy.
0: When Ginny says taxonomy, she means categorizing the microbes present.
1: So it's a it's a long process, but it's a very interesting process, and the methods for looking at these kinds of data are improving all the time.
0: This is long, tedious, and incredibly difficult work. It's not surprising that both Ginny and Jason have their preferred methods of relaxation. There's a gym on the ship, and Ginny can do an impressive number on the punching bag.
1: I've been a martial artist for about 25 years, you know? It teaches me perseverance, okay? So that's uh, something, you know, when you're a martial artist and you work at it for a long time, it teaches you that, you know, you have to push through difficult times, and uh, when you, when you're a microbial ecologist, or you know, it seems like ninety percent of what occurs is failure, and it's those ten percent successes, or you know, maybe even less, that keep you going.
2: Um, so I uh, am a musician, and I, I play guitar, and I was in a band for a while. I have a tattoo of my guitar in front of a Marshall amp, because there is only Marshall amps in my mind. Um, And the amp goes to 11, because it should. Uh, And it's on fire, of course, because that's rock and roll, and it says rock on, um, which is partially my kind of approach to life, just to try not to let things bother me too much and just move on. As I was watching Ginny and Jason break
0: open, grind up, and process these rocks, I couldn't help but think about how unalive they looked. It might surprise you that microbes can live in such tiny cracks and veins that run through such hard rocks. It sure surprised me, but it turns out that this environment might actually be perfect for these little guys. The rocks we're drilling through are high in the mineral olivine, and when olivine comes into contact with seawater, a reaction called serpentinization can occur. This produces exactly the kind of organic molecules that we expect microbes to love.
1: You can make organic materials from rocks, okay? So under, I mean, that's pretty cool, you know. Independent of of life, you know, you can have rocks if they have the right composition under the right sets of conditions can produce methane and short chain hydrocarbons and, You know, if there's CO2 present and you have metals present, you have pretty much all the goodies that a lot of microbes like to consume.
0: So the rocks beneath the seafloor are starting to sound like the ideal location for life. So ideal that some people think it could be where life on Earth may have started.
2: You already have um, carbon sources that are abiotically made, um, so you can get life kind of, you know, food for life before there is life. Um, which is one of the reasons we're yeah we're really fascinated with them and then also um, you know in terms of thinking about enzymes in general not not necessarily the ones that I'm measuring rates of but just you know all life needs enzymes to kind of mediate redox react or reactions in general A lot of those enzymes require metals as right where the reaction takes place. And so these rocks all have a lot of metals in them. And so there's uh, some people who think that you could basically have some of the reactions you have in a cell occurring just on the rocks on their own. And then if you have food right next to that and can somehow get some membranes together, that that's how life started to arise. And and that was likely a, a site that looks like this.
0: And if this is a likely candidate for the origin of life on Earth, it might be a good
2: place to look for life on other planets as well. Um, the more we understand about kind of weird, interesting ways that life exists on this planet, the more we can look at those environments or look for those environments on other planets and be like, well, if we know this is supportive of life here and we see it somewhere else, like, like on, on Mars or wherever, yeah. um, then there's at least a greater chance that there may have been or is life at that Place currently or sometime in the past. You know, it still doesn't tell me that's where life originated on Mars, if I see serpentinization there, but it does tell me there's a good chance that there either was at one time or is now life at that type of environment.
1: I think that by studying environments like the deep subsurface, we can learn a lot about the potential for life on other planets that share similar characteristics. Um, for instance, in another um, environment that I've worked in are deep hypersaline anoxic basins.
0: So under a lot of water, very salty, and no oxygen.
1: We're learning a lot about the types of microbes that live there, and for example, on Mars, it's thought that there are superficial brines that occur on near the, close to the surface, and so it gives us clues as to what type of organisms we might look for in places like that.
0: Those are some big questions and ones that will take a long time to answer particularly because we know so little about the microbes that might live in the hard rocks of the seafloor this is an incredibly young field of science but it's evolving fast who knows what sort of critters we might find deep beneath the ocean on his last expedition aboard the joides resolution jason found an entirely new microbe living in an inactive underwater volcano
2: i find rocks to be really charismatic because there's energy inherent in the rocks itself. There's sulfur and there's iron, and microbes can live off that. And so if you give them some water and introduce them to the rocks, you can get things to grow. And I just, I think that's really exciting. There's just cool. something yeah. about the rock itself that doesn't it's screw everybody else. I got my rock, I'm happy I live here. Like, I like that <laughs> <laughs> attitude. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think, I don't know that's that's a recent yeah. discovery necessarily, yeah. but just that kind of like It's a fundamentally different way of living, and I I think it's really interesting.
0: Okay, a lot has happened in the last couple weeks, so let me give you an update. In our last episode, you might remember that we had just learned that three of the tungsten carbide drill cones had broken off the end of the drill bit and were sitting at the bottom of the hole. We also needed to leave our drill site immediately to facilitate a medical evacuation. So first of all, we steamed north for two and a half days to get within helicopter range of land. The fact that you need to travel for two and a half days to meet a helicopter really makes the fact that we're isolated in the middle of the ocean hit home. We did meet a helicopter from the Mauritius police force, which touched down on the JR just long enough to pick up the crew member who was in need of medical attention. You'll be pleased to know that they did get the help they needed. Next, we did a U-turn, steamed back to the site, and got to work cleaning out the hole. This is done in a very high-tech manner. We stick a big magnet down the hole and hope the cones stick to it. A few tries of this turned up nothing, so we sent down another tool, it's called a reverse circulation junk basket, and it's kind of like a vacuum cleaner for rocks. High pressure water jets around the perimeter of the pipe wash any debris that is loose in the hole up inside the drill pipe, where it's caught by a series of metal teeth. However, when we used this tool, we ended up recovering a solid core of rock. We didn't even intend to. This tool is supposed to pick up debris, not cut rock. Because it was just this thin metal rim of the pipe that did the cutting, we ended up with a core that was nearly three times thicker than normal, the largest diameter core ever recovered by the JoyD's resolution. So that was pretty exciting. Now, besides the surprise of a vacuum cleaner cutting rock, there were no cones in the junk basket. And the core was so big that there wasn't really any room in the hole for the cones to hide. So that was kind of a mystery. The most popular theory was that either the magnets had picked them up and they would fallen out on the seafloor somewhere, or they're hiding somewhere in the crevices along the side of the hole. So we tried drilling again, and we lost another cone. Then we managed to fish out that cone and one other using the junk basket, so at least one was hiding in the wall of the hole somewhere. Where the other two are, we really don't know. But since then, we've been drilling ahead and things have been going really well. Our recoveries have almost always been over 90%, which is amazing for hard rock drilling. And despite the delays, the hole is over 700 metres deep. We've now got a week at sea left, so we'll see how far we get. Stay tuned. Get the latest updates from Expedition 360 at joidesresolution.org. That's J O I D E S resolution.org, as well as Facebook.com slash joidesresolution and on Twitter at the JR. A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea is supported by the European Consortium for Ocean Research Drilling's Scientific Support and Advisory Committee, as well as the International Ocean Discovery Program, the National Science Foundation, and the U.S. Science Support Program. This episode was produced and edited by myself with support from Sharon Cooper. You can follow me on Twitter at LucasKavanaugh or visit my website, lucas.fyi. The music used in this episode is by Bureaucratic. Visit him on the web at bureaucratic.bandcamp.com. Additional music was by microbiologist Jason Sullivan's band, Heartfelt Discord.